And so what we've had is transgenderism is a government-sponsored religion. And I wrote an article on that for public discourse that anybody can access. Um, and, and a California attorney locked onto that and wrote her own and sent me a thank you <laughs> on that for getting her started on it. Uh, and, it and, and this is what it is, you know, imposed ideology. What the church was not prepared for or aware of is how those that are pushing a, a change of belief system and theology within the church, within the Orthodox Church, are coming into the church and, and simply saying things like, oh, but you know, there's so much, there's, there's such, there's so many varied beliefs around these topics of LGBTQ within the church and different theologians feel differently and think differently about that. And so we just want to simply be, you know, come in and, and really be neutral on this. We're not taking a strong position either way on this. And what that does, I mean, that's an entry point in, I mean, that's the the proverbial, you know, the camel getting its nose under the, under the tent kind of thing. That there's a better way to live. You know, again, we're talking behavior, not the person. So uh, we don't we, we don't want people thinking, oh, you know, you're just bashing gays. That ah, you didn't hear anything we said. <laughs> you know, we're we're talking behavior, and we don't believe the ideology that you are gay, straight, cis, trans. As Christians, we need to be able to learn how to separate ideology from individuals, and we don't do that well. I think many people in the LGBT community assume that the church hates them because it's they've been told over and over again as christians if we are are recognizing like this the horrendous stuff that's being uh, dumped on children the things that you and i have talked about the things that you've unpacked and explained we need to, to actually not just stick our heads in the sand but we need to uh rise up and and be part of the solution uh in love and graciousness but with clarity and firmness as well Well, hey friends, thank you so much. Whether you're joining us from Transforming Congregations or through Love and Truth Network, those websites, we are so happy that you're here. We're happy that you have tuned in for another episode of the Love and Truth Network podcast. And I want to um, introduce you to a friend of mine, to uh, really somebody who is leading the way and exposing uh, truth and bringing truth to bear in a lot of confusion that's going on in our world, that's going on in our culture, obviously, particularly around the trans topic, but certainly in a, in a broader way in the LGBT world, and really calling Christians to uh, to examine what's true, to understand what's true, to be critical thinkers in the best uh, sense of the term, to not just accept everything that we're told, to not believe the headlines necessarily or look at uh, every um, outcome of a study that we're told uh, to uh, how to believe and how to think about those things. So I'm excited to have Andre Van Mole here with us, Dr. Uh, Van Mole, and and to have him weigh in on some of the topics that we want to discuss today. So to our audience, thank you for being here. And Dr. Van Mole, thank you so much for being here as well. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Well, hey, when we um, have a guest on, what we where we usually begin is their experience with Jesus. Like, what was life like before coming to Christ? Uh, a little bit of background there. Um, how did you come to uh, faith in Christ? And then how has life been different since then for you? Well, um, I, we came to the United States as a poor immigrant family when I was about a year and a half old. 
okay. um, $300 in the car. And the only English speaker was my 11 year old sister. Uh, and ended wow. up here in Redding, California when I was about, you know, two, two and a half, um, mm. strong Christian family. Um, you know, in our particular case, uh, uh, the family history is coming out of Belgium. My mom, by way of Italy, um, we're kind of, you know, nominal Catholics, uh, the assemblies of God came through town and most everybody converted. Um, mm-hmm. And my father, when he wasn't a welder and mechanic, uh, was a, a, a pastor. And that's what brought us to Montreal, where I was born. Um, but boom, you know, here we are in Redding, California. Uh, grew up wow. in a strong Christian family, had stuff, you know, demonstrated to me. Um, <clears throat> as, you know, we, we say about educating kids more is caught than taught. So I yes. can follow what my parents were doing, uh, not just, you know, what they were saying. Uh, I remember my first, um, you know, conversion experience was at church when there was somebody from the Billy Graham crusade and I was seven years old and I was telling mm. that, Hey, I, w- I want to go up, um, typical insecure church kid. You know, you recommit your life to the, to the Lord about a thousand times. Cause every time you mm. screw up, you figure, Oh no, I'm not a real one. Right. <clears throat> um, but when I was 14, I still remember it. I'm 63 now, but, uh, you know, this was, mm. uh, 1979. Uh, sorry, uh, 1974, uh, December 29. And uh, just, I don't even remember what the sermon was about. I just mm. remember the Lord and I were having this encounter, you know, this exchange. And it's like, hey, uh, my childhood faith has become kind of childish and I need to make a decision. So what's it going to be? <laughs> uh, mm. So, you know, recommitted my life to the Lord and boom, you know, just felt that the joy and all the good stuff scriptures, you know, t- talks about. And it that really set me off, you know, from that point, I view that as my mature conversion, I guess, probably mm-hmm. it's not theologically safe to say, well, there was nothing wrong with your seven year old conversion. The Lord listens to kids too. <clears throat> you know, right. you don't get a junior Holy Spirit when you're a kid, you get the real deal. <laughs> <clears throat> yep. Excuse me. Um, but you know, there it was. And as a teenager, uh, there was a real fire in my gut for apologetics mm. and what I later, you know, know is called bioethics, you know, culture of life kind of stuff. Um, yes. And that just built with time. <clears throat> and I was kind of known for, you know, standing up, uh, you know, for the faith and bioethics in high school, college, you know, med school, you know, et cetera, right on through. But of course, as, you know, the years go by, uh, you get exposed to more and better information or for that matter, more and worse that, you know, there's something wrong with this. And so, um, started kind of studying individual, you know, things in, in bioethics, you know, of course, um, rights of conscience, um, you know, assisted suicide, abortion, and, you know, why those are actually not good things and how to come against them, but more broadly, the, the sexual dynamic, um, Initially, uh, you know, studying material on, you know, same-sex attraction. Um, I thought the trans thing of everything in bioethics, this is surely something I can skip. Everyone's going to get this. They're going to see through it. And uh, fall of 2017, I was sitting exactly where I am now talking to you. And uh, it was this situation where you (laughs) kind of feel (laughs) almost like a hand on your left shoulder, nothing physical, you know. but I thought God just kind of spoke to me saying, you're wrong, make a lecture. And mm. it's meaningful for me because that's how I condense my thoughts is around lectures and I build out from them once I have them. Uh, and then in within months, you know, I was in Sacramento uh, 
working with teams, testifying against these kind of bills, uh, speaking to legislators, um, you know, trying to lobby, you know, with their staff, you know, and whatnot. And that would lead to other things and being on some, you know, national task forces and, and stuff like that. Um, I, I co-chair the uh, committee on, or the Council on Adolescent Sexuality, excuse me, <clears throat> the Council on Adolescent Sexuality for the American College of Pediatricians. Mm-hmm. Um, I co-chair the uh, task force on um, gender and sexual identity for the Christian Medical and Dental Association. And I'm really involved with Alliance Defending Freedom and their efforts. So our team there will be like helping them with amicus briefs that are submitted to circuit court and Supreme Court, you know, to explain a position or to counter, you know, other evidence and stuff. Um, And, you know, getting to, you know, testify in legislatures or parliaments, you know, in different countries. I mean, there's a limited amount of travel I can do. I mean, I'm a family doctor full time. I mean, that's, Mm. that's how I make the bread that goes on the table, you know? Okay. Uh, Yeah. So everything else is, is coming out of my side time. And I also don't want to, you know, impose on my marriage time or my family time either. So I'll have, you know, a bunch of kids in the house. So I'm kind of selective about stuff. And if I can sure. backtrack, it's like, well, that still didn't explain maybe so much of how the sexual effect got into it. Well, as a teenager, you know, where I went to church, um, again, way up here in, in northernmost California, um, we were introduced to this missionary uh, to the gay community in San Francisco. And even in the late seventies, they were seeing three dozen people a week come to the Lord. And of course, then, you know, the answer was, okay, welcome to the family of God. Get out of this town. You know, one and two, mm. uh, there's more stuff available for people now, you know, resources and things like that. So the answer isn't necessarily, oh, you know, you're an alcoholic working in a whiskey factory, get a new job. It was more, you know, get in with the family of God, work from the inside out, work from the Lord. There's all these resources. There's things you can do. Um, you know, you're not, maybe it's not fair to ever say it was white knuckling it. I think that's probably grossly unfair. Uh, Mm. there's people are better informed now, you know, people can, can help more, uh, more than platitudes. Right. Yep. Yeah. But there's definitely a season in my life where, you know, where I was kind of white knuckling it for a while in terms of uh, a variety of areas that, that were addictive or compulsive. And, and I do think that for many of us, that's kind of a, uh, a process or a stage that, that we do need to go through. I mean, essentially where we are, uh, we're saying no to something and yet not, not fully aware in, in many ways by a long shot on how to, you know, activate holiness or how to, uh, how to, how to walk with God in a way, how to, how to break free of not just from the behavior, which we can make a choice about, obviously, but those deeper drivers that tend to wear us down over time, if we're not finding answers or solutions to those things. So I think that part of what you're, as I'm listening to you, part of what I hear you saying is that, you know, there, there's so much more that we know now uh, than, and, and also the reality that we are approaching this, I think now, and, and have been for the last, I don't know, maybe a couple of decades, uh, certainly the last decade for sure, from more of a holistic perspective that it's it's definitely a spiritual issue to be sure, yeah. but it's, it's it, you know, we're spirit, soul, and body, that it is so much more than simply a spiritual issue. Right. And, and so we have to get, um, we have to, it's helpful to understand underlying causes and and some of the root issues that that developed so that we can invite christ into some of those places so that we can um, have our understanding 
changed and uh, to reframe perspectives that we have that have felt like, you know, bedrock realities when in fact, no, those things really are not rooted. They're, they're rooted more in trauma or brokenness mm-hmm. or those kinds of things. So I, when I hear you um, sharing what you just did, that's what I think of is that we've yeah. really grown, I think, in the capacity to do that. In some cases, I think there's, um, what I'd say is we, we tend to overshoot something, you know, yeah. when we, when we are correcting something, we can tend to, you know, overshoot and, and lean too much than, uh, I think like on therapy, for example, I, I think that, uh, my wife is a, is a licensed Christian counselor and I know many others who are as well. And I'm so grateful that we, we have good mental health counselors, but I think sometimes now there's, there's such a, a tendency to move so quickly toward counseling, uh, almost to the point that we're not even walking with people in the church. It's more of, Oh, let me refer you to a counselor. And the truth is many times we need both. We right. always need the relationship connection within the church. And then sometimes we need a really uh, qualified counselor to walk with us through past issues of trauma, abuse, neglect, rejection, whatever. Um, But sometimes I think we in the church tend to simply refer rather than, oh no, we're going to, let's let, let us, we want to walk with you in this place, even as you're working these things out in the counseling office. Does that make sense? Some things that come to mind is, you know, there's, well, look at the ancients, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Look at the New Testament answer to that. No temptation has overtaken you by that which is Mm. common to people. And with it, the Lord provides a way to escape. The problem we have Mm. right now is, of course, temptation is being canonized, as one author said. It's like, no, it's not that big. Oh, yeah, it is. It's who I am. No, it's just how you are. You know? Right. But if you're going to canonize it, it's going to be kind of hard to deal with. You know, give your temptation this sacred place in your life. It's like, I I don't see why your temptation is any holier than mine. Yes. Uh, you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I think also, as you say that, and you mentioned the word canonize, that really brings up, uh, for me, I, I've had more of an epiphany through others that have shared this and, and have really um, come to a place of believing that much within the LGBT, you know, framework, um, ideology is not just a you know, it, it's it's being posed as simply this is who you are, this is your identity, this is immutable. These are these are immutable characteristics like eye color, skin color, whatever else uh, that would be true of us bodily. But what I've come to realize is there's there's so much behind this that is really uh it's a it's a religious framework. I mean, it it is it is a new religion, and it definitely competes with uh, the truths of Scripture and um and competes with uh, you know Christ and and how he. He revealed himself to us and and honestly in, in what many ways it competes directly against christ's call that if you're going to be my disciple uh you need to deny yourself take yeah. up your cross and follow me i mean that is anathema to uh, the, the ideology of lgbtq and of course the ideology of of self basically within the heterosexual population too right so uh there is something of a of a strong religious component when you mention the word canonize that that's what comes to my mind yeah and it's a dodge you know, ultimately, it's like, no, there is no issue, you know. And of course, uh, you know, think of the subject of, uh, okay, I, w- the language is weaponized, right? Yeah. And if right. there's anything that side's good at in, in the entire secular progressive thing is weaponizing language. So when we come on the playing field, we're using their terms, ah, we're already painted into a corner and on very thin ice. Right. So kind of the intro I give is, you know, uh, these are category errors. 
you know, gay, straight, cis, trans category errors in weaponized terms. For all of human history, sexuality was a verb, not a noun. It's something you did, not who you were. Behavior, but it's not identity. Then in the 1800s in Europe, this homosexual, heterosexual thing was invented, purely ideological, by the way. Uh, And then in the mid-20th century, uh, the gay-straight, you know, changing of the language, equally ideological, uh, but it has its due effect. It gets people thinking a certain way, you know. Yes. And it's it's not it, you know. So what what's our answer to that? Would be if your ideology, you know, says you're gay or straight or whatever. Um, what I'm going with says now <laughs> you're a man or a woman created in the image of God of tremendous right. value. That is the exclusive source of such things as universal human rights. Um, universal human equality. And we have that little factoid, you know, from Jürgen Habermas, Europe's preeminent philosopher, who's an atheist, Luc Ferre, his French equivalent, and, you know, right on down the line, these high scholars that understand the Judeo-Christian faith's contribution to the Western world. So mm. when people come against us and say, well, you know, you're, you're, you're against gay rights, you're against human rights. It's like, mm, you can't have that. You didn't earn that. You know, right. uh, human rights come from the Judeo-Christian framework. So a less Christian America is not going to be a less religious one, but you sure won't like the faith that takes its place once you've taken all this foundational stuff out of the way, you know? Mm-hmm. Excuse right. me as Absolutely. I preach. But. No, no, no. That's uh, that's great. I It reminds me also of a conversation I was recently involved in uh, in another country uh, from people in another country talking about how there was this um what the church was not prepared for or aware of is how those that are pushing a a change of belief system and theology within the church within the orthodox <clears throat> church are coming into the church and and simply saying things like oh but you know there's so much there's there's such there's so many varied beliefs around these topics of LGBTQ within yeah. the church and different theologians feel differently and think differently about that. And so we just want to simply be, you know, come in and and really be neutral on this. We're not taking a strong position either way on this. And and what that does, I hadn't really thought about it before this conversation, but what that does, I mean, that's an entry point in. I mean, that's the the proverbial, you know, the camel getting its nose under the under the tent kind of thing, yeah. is that now there's there's this in in our desire to be merciful and kind and uh and 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 just invite others to the table we're really inviting very very divergent um uh divergent from scripture views on sexuality for sure and we're we're doing it because it's like oh well you're not you're not pushing the idea yet you're not pushing the idea of we need to adopt pro-gay theology but uh you're you're you are being more nuanced and neutral about that honestly i get so sick of the word nuance these days (laughs) i I just hear so many christian leaders using that word and it drives and i understand that it can be a good word and can be used well but it's over overused and what i what i'm finding more and more is that leaders are using that as a way of kind of abdicating clarity of truth yeah, clarity in dodge. general it's another judge it is another dodge in in many ways and i'm not saying that the word can't be used appropriately right. but it it tends to be a dodge from having to say the difficult things the hard things but the things that actually produce life yeah. um that's what we're for right we we actually desire 
transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit, yeah. not simply a tweak on our flesh because, and then call that, that's really a false gospel right. because there's there's no life change that's happened there. We simply are speaking, we're using, like you're saying, we're using even the word gospel uh, means very different things to different people these days. We can't assume that when someone uses the word gospel, they're talking about this surrender of ourselves and, and this death to self to embrace the life that Jesus died to give us. Um, instead, it can, it can mean you know, something that's not at all biblical gospel. Yeah. So it's important that we, that we, I think, step back and look at language, even the word love. I mean, I talk about being, uh, you know, twisted uh, out of proportion. Yeah. Uh, when you look at what First Corinthians 6, uh, sorry, First Corinthians 13 verse 6 says, is that we know that that whole chapter is being, you know, the love chapter essentially. And it is such an important piece of scripture. But verse six says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And and, and if you to, were to use that as a benchmark or a barometer for where we're at in, in the Christian church in many cases, we are way off base of that. We are actually yeah. moving so much closer to where culture is at rather than standing firm on the scriptures and acting out of genuine love and inviting people out of darkness into the light of, of, of the truth yeah. of As, um, as my of wife salvation. likes to say, you know, what's loving about telling someone they cannot change? Or, you know, Professor yes. uh, Robert Gagnon there at Houston Christian University, you know, he points out, as you were, that genuine love has a corrective function. And I would add, without that corrective function, it's just enablement and codependency. So, you know, this, so it's just loving to so-and-so. It's like, that's actually not love and all, you know, you're throwing someone right. under the bus. Um, right. And, you know, as you were mentioning before, you know, we, we can't, you don't want to overemphasize it. You don't skip it either. You know, it's one sin among many. Um, yes. Although the effects of it are, you know, not the effects of all sin are not all equal. Things work differently, right? Cheating on your taxes is different than murdering a child. The consequences yes. are different. Um, yes. And we genuinely believe, you know, as, as Christians, that any sex that's not between husband and wife is generally against human flourishing. It, it's not yes. helpful. Um, and that there's a better way to live. You know, uh, again, we're talking behavior, not the person. So uh, we don't we, we don't want people thinking, oh, you know, you're just bashing gays. That you didn't hear anything we said. You know, right. We're we're talking behavior, and we don't believe the ideology that you are gay, straight, cis, trans. Yes, or or unable as somebody who is totally opposite sex attracted. You're not. You're also not unable to live. Uh, a life that is sanctified and actually blesses the other as opposed to using the other and and even allowing ourselves to be used and objectified. There's so much more that God has for us than uh, than that. I mean, really the development and the, the thriving of the whole person. And when we are living in sexual immorality and we're doing these quick fixes, you know, these microwave options to feel better, to, to, to stuff down our pain, to fill the emptiness, to... Yeah. Uh, whatever, whatever the thing we're trying to do to self-medicate, so often sex becomes a part of that. So often in our day now, with the with the rapid increase of of acceptance and celebration around transgenderism, and of course transgenderism now has that that whole um, label has blown up in terms of what's underneath of it. In term, and when I say blown up, I simply mean it's expanded, and and it it now encompasses so many different things, even in, in the area of furries, even in the area mm -hmm. of of um, not just trans um, gender, but trans species even. So, uh, you know, when you look at all of that, even that is this um, kind of this 
quick fix option that I'm going to take control of my own life. I'm going to be the God of my own outcomes. And I now can, we, we believe the lie. People believe the lie that in their, in their pain and their sorrow and their suffering, oftentimes as children with little attachment or no attachment to mom, dad, or uh, maybe one, but not the other. And, and by the way, I think that fatherlessness is one of the biggest um, areas of crises in in not just in the in the in the culture, but in the world is in the church as well many times. And and so we're trying to find this identity, and it feels like it. Why wouldn't it be compelling to a young person to be told that oh, these are some concrete changes you can make. This is what's wrong with you. These are, and you can take steps now to correct all this and solve the pain and the problems in your life. And instead of being sold something, told something that is actually good and um, will will promote thriving, will promote um, genuine uh, life and joy. Instead of that, it's just this downward spiral that's going to lead further and further into uh, sorrow, depression, uh, all kinds of disturbances. And yet we're not recognizing as adults what's happening to the children around us. I mean, I see it in people's lives. I see it in the moms and dads I talk to. I see it in the the various people who the 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 people who have embraced this ideology. And you watch from the beginning of when they started to embrace this, and and the more that they delve into it, the further they go down that rabbit hole, right. the more depressed, the more anxious, the more disturbed they get. And yet there's a lack of recognizing that and this belief that I just have to dial it in deeper. I have to I have to really commit more to this and go to the next whatever it is, bottom surgery or yeah, or the, the, um, the compulsivity or whatever. that makes you go from one step to the other, knowing that it's not fixing things, but surely the next step will be better. Right, And then that right. community uh, squashing any dissent because, oh, you don't want to help the anti-trans bigots, you know, so yes. it's quite a trap. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I had the privilege of, um, of sharing the stage with several people a weekend or so ago and, and just sharing my story and, and them sharing theirs. And we did a, a Q and A and just had a, a time of uh, together and with pastors as well as with a broader audience. And Chloe Cole was one of the people uh, that was there sharing as well. And man, I mean, her story, she's, she's become such a powerful voice in, um, in standing against this mutilation of children and all the things that were done to her and the confusion that was brought about and the lack of anyone understanding people who should have and did frankly, but um, people who should have understood and and were curious about wanting to help her uncover like what are what are the what are the situations you're facing at school and at home? What has there been trauma in your life? Are there things that that we can help you with that will will help your your mind, your heart, as opposed to automatically putting you on this conveyor belt of of you know transgender uh, all the way to to you know uh, hormone blockers and uh, so called you know therapy uh, hormone replacement uh, with testosterone in her case and then uh, double mastectomy so you know the things that we are doing and allowing and promoting and and other countries and I speak to this too I mean other countries finally seem to be waking up and yet America seems to be um, going just ratcheting down and and more committed to the chaos when other countries are rec actually recognizing, wait a minute, this was not, this is not helpful. That's right. Comprehensive literature reviews out of the UK, uh, three out of the UK, two out of Sweden, one out of Finland, had these countries do complete 180s from being leaders mm -hmm. in pro-transition to, you know, 
for any minor, the focus has to be mental health for they and their families, because we are sure to find issues, you know, both. I mean, that's one of the two, you know, great realities of gender dysphoria is the overwhelming probability of underlying mental health problems, adverse childhood experiences, uh, bad family dynamics, even maybe in the best of homes, and uh, sure. a, a real disrepresentation of autism spectrum disorder. It's like mm. those are what need to be dealt with. Um, and the other great reality of it is the natural course of gender dysphoria in a minor is desistance by adulthood conservatively 85% of the time. And we have a truckload of studies demonstrating that, you know, it's not off the top of our head. Um, so, you know, very lefty, very secular, Finland, Sweden, uh, England, 180s, you know, based on the science, um, the French, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, National Academy of Medicine, of course, Académie Nationale de Médecine Française, uh, <coughs> had a fabulous uh, uh, press release they did on this last year pointing out all this stuff and bemoaning the fact that that kids can get all kinds of stuff in France that they shouldn't be able to get, you know, or at least not so easily. Mm. Uh, the guy who's the head of the evidence-based medicine, it, it has an organizational name uh, that I don't remember at the top of my head, CBAM or something like that, is the acronym in Belgium, who said, yeah, you know, l looking at the uh, evidentiary support for use of puberty blockers put forward by WPATH, he said we'd put it in the round file. <laughs> we'd we throw it away. Uh, and other countries yes. looking at it saying, hey, this is not what we've been told. But yeah, America and Canada, but we have so much, you know, more 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 force globally than the Canada is in this. Uh, we are sure. the prime outliers on this, and we are the ones driving it. And it's, you know, big ideology uh, meets big money, be that corporate money or philanthropic, you know, or whatever. And there's plenty of it. Um, and th they've captured the academic institutions. Uh, the school system in America is a prime driver of this for kids. The entertainment yes. industry, media, um, you know, and corporate America's gone woke. I mean, granted, with some of these Supreme Court decisions saying this DEI thing, no. Uh, and there's uh, by which DEI, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, which is an antonym. Mm -hmm. It's exactly the opposite. Um, right. But states like North Carolina, Texas, Florida, and some others now said, you know what? No more of this in our university system. Uh, it's going to be based on merit, you know, straight up. Um, right. And because of that, some corporations are starting to rethink their DEI departments that are, you know, so coercive. Um, you know, I've been asked in, in testimony uh, for, get specific, uh, more recently in the state of Kentucky, uh, where I testified by Zoom in, in two different legislative sessions for a bill that was ultimately passed, uh, though downgraded a bit. Uh, and, you know, how come I said the same thing, by the way, in person to a, a, an Ohio legislative committee. The reason you don't have more doctors and psychologists here testifying is the very real and true concern that they can be losing their jobs, their career, their personal safety, and potentially that of their families. And the uh, the state senator uh, in Kentucky who sponsored the bill pointed out the second go around that she couldn't get a single Kentucky MD to testify against it for exactly that reason. She was told that yes. over and over and over again, I'm not going to lose my job over this. You know, so that yep. that's a very high level of, of coercion and manipulation going on for a group that you know claims there there's forgive me, but you know that they're so persecuted. Um, right. and, and this whole, everything, you know, you're, you're a victim or you're an oppressor 
you know, critical race theory, which is, you know, neo-Marxism and in, in, in new clothing, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's wrong. That's not how the world divides. And particularly for right. Christians, uh, the, the problem's not power structures, or at least, you know, nowhere near the degree it's being talked about. The problem is sin. And that we're equal partakers. You know, that, that's yes. the great equalizer that way. Um, so, of course, talking about sin is going to be misunderstood if you bring that up, you know, in a legislature. And, you know, we're, we're talking about other legalities here. And, you sure. know, I, I use exclusively scientific presentation uh, when I'm doing this. And then what the other side does is comes at us with way cheap theology or, you know, like some gay publications in Florida that came after me. It's like, oh, you know, religion masquerading as science. It's like everything we presented was science. Everything was right. from the literature. You guys are the ones, you know, uh, throwing all these red herrings, you know, at us and stuff. Um, but, you know, it's, well, and, it's part of the game. So I guess we expect it when we're out in the public field. Absolutely. It's, it's true. And uh, Dr. Van Mull, you mentioned earlier, but I'd like you to to talk about this a little bit more or just to say it again because i don't want this to be missed uh in the podcast you mentioned the the 85 percent number um as as you know a range or a low number maybe even higher by some of the studies but that i want people to really understand that children i'll say it this way you can uh correct and and uh clarify but basically children who are left to children who deal with some level of gender dysphoria or uh, discomfort in their own bodies, which, by the way, can anybody think back right. to when they were going through puberty and not feeling uncomfortable in our bodies? Yeah. But uh, children that that are starting to feel that way, dealing with some actual gender dysphoria, uh, if they're left to themselves, if they're not put on the the bandwagon of the of the, you know transgenderism and moving in that direction, they eighty five percent of the time or higher will um will come to correlate with their biology is that correct yeah the broadest swath you know if you're looking for the extremes of the literature it says no less than 60 percent and in in guys it's up to 98 percent okay but if the 85 percent number that's repeated a lot as a pooling um mm-hmm. yeah if they're just left alone they will get comfortable with their own body by the time you know they are adults unless it is affirmed and that yes. is why so much as social affirmation is destructive. And in the UK, this this has been put into print. Uh, one of those three comprehensive literature reviews is the CAS review. And it was just the interim report that came out, resulted ultimately in the closing of the world's largest pediatrics gender clinic, the National Health Services Gender Identity Development Service at Tavistock and Portman. Closed, you know, and <clears throat> to reopen under a new model with strong emphasis on on mental health, neurodevelopmental problems, insisting that the teams that deal with this have experts and all the above. Um, No more of what they call diagnostic overshadowing. Well, what does that mean? That means whatever other diagnoses you had coming into this, oh, you know, autism spectrum disorder, uh, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety. As soon as someone says gender dysphoria, you're trans, all that stuff was just pushed to the yes. side. That's diagnostic overshadowing. And those problems are still yes. there. And one of the things they noted in their write-up for the new model is, you know, the the strong pronouncement that social affirmation is not a benign intervention. It achieves something, and you better think about this. And yes. a lot of other good things that have, you know, come come in that. So, you know, 
the same thing, some of the best studies on this, again, there's decades of literature showing these underlying mental health problems, um, uh, uh, ACEs, as we call them, adverse childhood experiences, mm -hmm. uh, family issues, <clears throat> autism spectrum disorder, shows that they predate the appearance of gender dysphoria. It's not the other way around because of minority stress theory and, you know, because of um, being stigmatized. The problems were there first. And in the case mm -hmm. of rapid onset gender dysphoria, that's where it shows up in the teens and tweens with no antecedent. There was no sign of this yeah. before. And I know the other side hates hearing rapid onset gender dysphoria, <clears throat> but it's a reality and it's by other names has been recognized in the literature long before Lisa Littman gave it a name in 2018 or so. Um, th that in that particular case, look how often it happens like when there's divorces happening, really nasty family dynamics or some family tragedy, and the kid locks onto this false answer. And that, mm -hmm. by the way, is what makes um, kids on autism spectrum disorder, you know, Asperger's right on down, what makes them so vulnerable to this and why they're so overrepresented is, you know, ASD kids or adults have a hard time uh, with abstractions. They lock onto the concrete. And so what happens with coaching from the web, it can happen with coaching from your friend group, but, you know, ASD yeah. kids tend not to have so many friends, but they get convinced by the wrong part of the web. Now I know why I'm so different from all my friends. It's because I'm trans. What? It's exactly mm -hmm. the wrong answer. But once they've locked onto it, it kind of has, you know, sticking power to it. Yes. Yeah, very much so. You know, the other thing, when you mentioned Tavistock, so th this, that closed down. And what that reminds me of, though, is you probably have the uh, the dates in terms of the years. I, I you know back I, I forget which year it was that we had only one um, one hospital or one uh, one so called treatment center. Two thousand seven uh, Boston Children's. Okay, amazing. Two thousand seven, we went from one to now we have over two hundred. I think across the country. You can't count them now because uh, the Planned Parenthood clinics have also become dispensing centers for hormones. So it's not yes. just like oh you know the university centers. There's you know over a hundred of them. Uh, you have to count all the Planned Parenthood clinics. Well, and you also mentioned um, the idea, and this is very important, I think, as well. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we miss this, that social affirmation is not a benign thing, no. right? And so one of the things I've been sharing when I'm teaching and, and preaching and, you know, traveling and doing conferences and such is that, you know, we often, there's, there's three primary stages of transition. There's the social transition, there's the, the chemical hormonal transition, and there's the surgical transition. And, and, and maybe you might have another way of nuancing that, or, or there's that word again, or yeah. um, clarifying that. But what I oftentimes say to the churches, there are churches that are out of the best of intentions and out of a good motivation, actually engaging in social transition. And, and they're not realizing the power that by going along with uh, using pronouns that are not accurate, using um, it, it, the, the name thing to me is a little bit more... Um, I'm not I'm not always sure what to do about the name right. situation because in some cases I don't even know what the name is. Right. There are there are times, right, that that so if I'm if I'm evangelizing or I'm or I'm being introduced to somebody or some a new a new kid shows up at youth group, I don't know what their original name is if they're yeah. only telling me what it is now. But when it comes to the pronoun situation and 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 going along with and accommodating that, I think that there's ways as we that we as the church and Christians 
can, and friends, believing friends, can actually engage with somebody in a way that's really loving, really open, but also very clear about, hey, I can I can do this. I, I'm not going to go out of my way to call you by a pronoun that you don't like or that you don't like referred to you. I'm not going to just say he, he, he over and over again, every right. chance I get or his, um, if that's not how you want to be referred to. But I'm also not going, I can't also use a, 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 a pronoun or a reference to you that's not true or accurate either. Right. And and so I think there's ways that it feels like, I think in the church, it's like either, either we're mean and we're truthful or we're loving and we accommodate yeah. things See, that are not true. I'm thinking, you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and the more recent Christian author who titled a book by it, who's actually right next to me, uh, Rod oh, Dreher, right. that's his book. I should have yes. said the book there. Don't live by lies. You know, so yes. someone else can pick their name. That's not my call, but you don't get to pick my pronouns. And respect right. is a two-way street, you know. So if this relationship is dependent on manipulative and coercive language, we already sort of have a problem. You know, right. I can respect you and I can show you compassion, even if we strongly disagree. Um, but uh, don't don't pick my pronouns for me. And that, by the way, that's what tolerance originally meant, right? That's That's what you described. That's what I told a corporate head once who was calling me on the carpet on this. I go, you know, uh, tolerance is a two way street. That's what it means. Mm -hmm. You know, there's gotta be give and take, you know, both ways. And of course there's so much, you know, emotional blackmail that's coming into this, you know, nationally, internationally that, you know, if you don't agree with us, at least a suicide. But, eh, that's actually not what the literature shows. How dare you say that? And so I'll show you the literature of, of why I say right. that. You know, but again, the, these points have been so reinforced by the other side. So much emotional blackmail. People are afraid to contradict it. You know, but yes, that's what ends up happening when you're you're, you're speaking reality to a situation. Is you'll be falsely accused. You know, and you just need to push through that and demonstrate the good stuff rather than demonstrating the bad stuff that we're being falsely accused of. Right. Well, and I, that also brings to mind the, something that Chloe said in, in this uh, engagement that we were, we were doing this conference. And I, I recall her saying this, and then I've heard this from plenty of others as well, that she doesn't blame her parents for not, um, for not, fighting harder for her to um you know to resist going down this pathway uh because one of the reasons is because it wherever they turned it was reinforced over and over again oh, this is it. that this is the only thing that that is going to help your daughter yeah, we, we uh, hear she's not a girl she's from, a boy yeah, we have parents from coast to coast telling us they were told look do you want a live son or a dead daughter do you want to be planning exactly. a transition or a funeral and of course yep. gender transition procedures can't begin to deliver on that promise but they're told it is you know right right well and yeah so the the level of manipulation is and manipulation and and cruelty honestly in that is is just is shocking and and in many ways unbelievable so yes many parents are getting you know caught up in in this simply because they love their child and they're trying yeah. to, they're they're listening to the so-called medical or mental health advice that's being given to them and 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 again so many times that's i'm not saying in every case but in many cases the mental health of of the child is not even being taken into consideration it's simply oh this is the like you said if you say transgender then everything else is pushed aside you can't even be curious as a counselor or a mental health provider about going down that path and 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 trying to uncover what some of the 
uh, you know, potential causes could have been or what some of the underlying issues are. You just have to check now, sweep all that off the table. And now we're only looking at the centerpiece yeah. of transgenderism. And so what we've had is transgenderism is a government sponsored religion. And I wrote an article on yes. that for public discourse that anybody can access. Um, and, and a California attorney locked onto that and wrote her own and sent me a thank you uh, on that for getting her started on it. Uh, and, it mm-hmm. and, and this is what it is, you know, imposed ideology. Um, and it needs to be recognized as such. And again, the, the pushback has started, you know, both internationally uh, as well as nationally here. Uh, lawsuits such as Chloe Coles and Truth in Advertising, I, I, um, I'm working with the attorneys in that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, the state of Florida and all they've done uh, to, to turn what their state was doing around that their, you know, uh, Medicaid division will not be paying for gender transition procedures for, for minors or adults. Uh, I've been contracted to it. You know, I've been assisting them along with other people helping them uh, all through that so that they were supported by, you know, good science, good medicine. Um, this, this stuff needs to be resisted and it's going to come down. But it's just the sooner the better because, you know, every day some kids getting chemically sterilized or surgically mutilated. So the sooner this ends, the better. And, you know, it's as Professor Paul McHugh of uh, Hopkins, who brought this down when it was happening, you know, uh, in the last century. um, He said this is going to come down when, when, when the kids and the families that have come through this come out on the other end. When they turn around and they don't just sue the doctors and the hospitals, but the pharmaceutical firms and the insurance companies, that's when this is going to stop. And that's what's yeah. starting to happen. Now. I'm very pleased to say, you know, it's the early stages of it, but there's, you know, malpractice cases across the board. And the, the thing with uh, the Chloe Cole case, since it's the Kaiser hospital chain, well, that's an HMO. So it's a hospital that is a chain that is an insurance company. So it's an extremely mm-hmm. significant case. So we're hoping it's going to be America's Bell versus Tavistock, which was the big case in the UK that helped get things rolling. Yes. Um, but, you know, the insurance companies, uh, the, the pharmaceutical firms, the hospital chains, all those who stood to profit from this. And you profit big because when you medicalize somebody, they're medicalized for the rest of their life. And they're yes. needing stuff that they would never be using otherwise forever. And then other stuff for the complications. And if they engage in surgeries, that, you know, very often leads to complications leading to more surgeries and so on and so forth. So now they're going to get to pay the other way around. You know, now now you're going to, these people that you encourage to get chemically sterilized, surgically mutilated, how about you get to pay for their medical care? And yes, the insurance will cover it. It won't be an uncovered problem, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. And look at this uh, on a different subject, same result. (coughs) State of California, uh, North Carolina, understand Virginia. Uh, Starting with North Carolina in 2012 and California was the most recent in 2021. Passing laws that any surviving individual who was subject to government forced sterilization because of the eugenics movement, which California played a big part in, you know, uh, the mm-hmm. states, uh, the state's going to pay you for your suffering. The states mm-hmm. are going to get to do it again. You know, all these states yes. that have encouraged kids and adults, uh, to, you know, railroading them, as I told several legislators in California, railroading them to this down this path to nowhere. It doesn't address the problems. It doesn't change anything except, you know, now you've made the person sterile and butchered them up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, there's, I love the, the folks that I know who embraced, um, who went down this road, who were confused, who who went along with the, you know, the so-called advice of, of those who led them astray. 
and and went even you did top surgery, bottom surgery and uh, hormone therapy or whatever, all that. And by the way, none of these drugs uh, speak to this for a moment. None of these drugs that are being used are are actually FDA approved for this purpose. Right. These are all off label. Correct. That's right. Using uh, gonadotropin releasing hormone agonist puberty blockers um, for gender dysphoria is not FDA approved. It's only approved for precocious puberty, where you've actually got a disease state that you're interfering with for a few years yeah. until the proper age kicks in, or for prostate mm-hmm. cancer, that kind of thing. Cross-sex yeah. hormones, you know, interestingly, there was a 2014 national review, but more importantly, a 2019 international review. Different endocrine societies from around the world asked to look at the literature and, hey, what does the literature say about testosterone use in women? And both came to the same conclusion that there is absolutely no indication for testosterone in women except short-term use for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And that's it. Mm. And the 2019 one specified there's no exception, not for disease prevention, not for wellness, you know. And they added the long-term consequences of testosterone in women has not been adequately studied. And that study didn't say one word about gender dysphoria. It's like, oh, there's cowardice. You know what you had to say in that study. You know what you had to say and you avoided saying it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to talk a little bit with you about the way that um, studies and um, samples and, you know, all the data that goes into outcomes and uh, the analysis can be so flawed and so twisted. I mean, we, we hence the adage that you uh, you can really use the num- numbers for anything. Yeah. But I'd love for you to speak to that a little bit. But before we get to the, that, I, I'm also um, reminded of a law that just recently passed in California that Governor uh, Newsom signed into law, a bill, uh, 665, I believe it is. It, I think it, they got it off by a digit. Um, but Bill 665 has to do with um, with, with children, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, possibly being able to be taken away from their parents who don't affirm um, gender dysphoria, which also opens up then, and maybe I'm maybe I'm conflating two different bills, but also opens up that uh, California essentially is a sanctuary state for underage kids to come to uh if they if they can get away from their parents they can come and and essentially be emancipated if they identify as trans and they want to go down this um this pathway uh toward you know pursuing um uh intervention can you speak to the to those yeah, issues so a little bit many, as far as california you know, bills on you know trans items and whatever in, in california that have been you know, passed over the last, you know, several years. Uh, and it is hard to keep them straight. And they, there's different ones that keep building on the other. But yeah, California mm-hmm. is a sanctuary state for abortion and for transing. Some have called the transing part of that the child kidnapping bill because of how it yeah. would affect, you know, uh, for example, custody cases in other states or whatnot where you have competing parents and all the kid has to do is arrive here. And now suddenly he's competent to make or she is competent to make decisions they can't make. You know, kids don't have the intellectual wherewithal to to make uh, informed consent decisions on this kind of thing. They can't get a tattoo, you know, without parental permission, but they can, you know, have this happen. Uh, There's other stuff, you know, that wasn't signed into law, uh, but, you know, some of these kind of things were. Um, I think they're not going to hold up well in court. Uh, uh, Several other things have actually been struck down in court 
on, on some different mm. components of things. But yeah, California just keeps shoveling this stuff out, you know, faster than people can react to it. Yeah. Yep. Well, speak to the um, some of the studies that have that have been done. That, for example, I think of uh, a study that that was done that is indicating that people who uh, uh, experience um, uh, counseling and uh, so-called conversion therapy, talk therapy, uh, are are more apt to commit suicide um, after that. And, and again, correct the language that I'm using if it's off or wrong. But there, I know that there is a study that was indicating that, oh no, this there's serious issues that you, steer clear of so-called conversion therapy, again, talk therapy uh, for these issues because uh, people are committing suicide uh, once they get into these um, these talk therapy sessions on this topic. Can you clear that up? Yeah, first, taking back the language, uh, conversion therapy is a pejorative, vague, jamming tactic since its first appearance in the professional literature in 1991 when an activist a gay psychologist put it in there. So it's whatever people mm -hmm. say it is, of course, and it's presented as horrible. Uh, the Frankly, in the modern world, there is no such thing. It's it, What we're talking about is simple talk therapy with a willing and motivated client who's the person who brings it up, right? But <clears throat> you're talking most recently, um, I believe, of the Blasnich study, which um, yes. looked at a body of data that's publicly available from the Williams Institute called the Generation Study. And it said, you know, we all know that, uh, you know, gay identified people have much more adverse childhood experiences and traumas. And it's like, oh, I'm glad to see you admit that because half the time we bring it up and you call us bigots. Um, but they went on to say, right. and one of those is conversion therapy, which increases the chance of suicide. Well, a um, scholar, psychologist, colleague of mine uh, roped me and a couple of other people into looking at this. Um, I was actually the only non-scholar amongst them. The other three were all professors, right? Um, and said, look, look, look at the mistakes this guy made, you know? So submitted a letter to the editor that, you know, he got published. I was one of the co-signatures. Uh, in that mm -hmm. same journal, um, you know, the, the, the first take on it was, well, first of all, you're making the same mistake that's repeatedly made in these, oh, conversion therapy is evil studies, um, that you didn't look at the before and after, you're looking at a lifetime association. Oh, people who had conversion therapy had worse mental right. health and more suicide attempts. Well, the question is, was that before the therapy or after? I mean, looking at something else the same way, you could say, oh, uh, gee, uh, coronary artery bypass grafting has got to be banned because more people who have that have, have heart conditions. And, you know, whoa, 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 yeah, that's why they had it. Or you have to do away with antidepressants because, you know, more people are associated with suicidality that have been on antidepressants. Well, yeah, okay, mm -hmm. but before or after the medicine, right? So um, Professor Paul Sullins got the raw data. Again, it's publicly available, the generation study. And looking at it, he found it had, it had always had the data in there of before and after. Nobody that's written a study on it had ever looked on it before him and found twofold. The people with worse mental health were the more likely ones to go for sexual orientation change efforts. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, you're, you're worse off, you're more likely to look for help, right? And then experienced an extraordinary drop in suicidality. And, and some of the indicators of suicidality, you know, because it comes in different forms, thoughts, intentions, whatnot, um, or actual actions, it went down 17 to 25 times. Exactly 
the opposite of what Blasnitz times claims. not percent. Yeah. Yes. And of course, uh, Blasnitz and the team didn't like any of this <laughs> being heard and published. And of course, poof, one letter to the editor saying, uh, this should be retracted because it's bad. It's like, well, there's science on high, you know, right. you didn't like what was said. So you're trying to cancel it. But yeah, that's one example of what you were talking about. And we have several studies out, um, just in, in the past two to three years, actually showing people going through therapy. And this is longitudinal. They're following around. It's not the usual retrospective stuff. Yes. Showing that they generally were helped. And even for those for whom, and this was another study Sellens did, even for those for whom therapy was a complete failure, they had an improving of mental health. Mm. They came to peace yeah. with things. The, the therapy was a help, not torture, didn't lead them to suicide, just the opposite of what we're told. Uh, but that's a sacred cow that's going to die kind of hard. Yeah. Well, once the messaging gets out there, and this is this is the reason behind it, right? right. Once it's out there and it's blasted out on the airwaves and, and through media that also has uh, a bent and seems oh, to... You bet. Uh, have an ideology that completely agrees with these perspectives. It's, you know, it's very hard to, you, you, you can retract it, but it's very hard to actually, you can't get the, the horse back in the barn. Basically people wind up believing that, Oh no, wow. Th this study came out that says that um, therapy actually causes harm uh, and, and, and people are committing suicide as a result of it. And so now, wow, as Christians that are supposed to be compassionate, what do we do about that? And, and so there's, there's just so much confusion out there. Another one that, that, uh, another thing that I've heard is that when I was reading through, um, uh, Ryan T. Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally, yeah. that's such an excellent book that Amazon banned. Uh, one of the statements, one of the um, studies he refers to, um, was that those who are, are post-surgery, uh, for again, transgenderism, those after, after surgery, they're still, uh, transgender folks are still 19 times more likely to commit suicide than the average population. Do you know which, um, which study he was referring to there? Sure do. Uh, we quote that one very often, 2011 out of Sweden, uh, the author's last name, D-H-E-J-N-E. -E, I don't know how to pronounce that in Swedish. Um, they looked, it was a, um, a study over 30 years, uh, looking mm. at the, you know, medical uh, records and all that of all 324 people who had undergone transition in Sweden. So selection bias of zero, they included everybody and found that if you follow them, not six months, not a year or two, like most of these studies do and claim victory, right. you follow them 10 years out or more. At that point, they have, like you said, 19 times the completed suicide rate of the general population. They didn't try. Mm -hmm. They did. About yep. three times the all-cause mortality, meaning all the things that can kill someone, and about three times the rate of psychiatric hospitalization. Well, that's not sounding great, you know. Now, again— That doesn't sound very loving, no, actually. No. And again, that 2020 study now by Brandstrom and Pachankis that ultimately showed, again, in Sweden, looking at all 9.7 million people in the records and stuff, um, that neither what they call gender-affirming hormones nor gender-affirming surgery improved any of the mental health benchmarks they were mm. looking at. And another very interesting study, just 2021, comprehensive study looking at the 3,700 trans-identified adolescents in U.S. military families, and they looked over eight and a half years, and they found that uh, gender hormone treatment led to an increased use of the mental health services, pediatric medical services, increased suicidal ideation, increased suicide attempt. It's not helping things. It's a dodge. Yes. 
Yes. Yep. Are there any others? We come to uh, the end of the podcast for those that are listening or watching. Are there any other particular uh, studies or points that maybe maybe some newer, maybe some older, but some things that we haven't hit on yet that you feel would be um, helpful for people to know about? I know you have a lot of information out there, and I'd love for you to share in a moment how people can can follow you and and uh, and you know and read some of the the reports you've written or some of the articles that you put out. But are there any other pieces that you feel like um, should be mentioned here before we uh, close sure. out our podcast? I, I, there's common flaws, you know, to the studies saying, oh, you know, pro-transing. And as pointed out by my colleague, um, uh, Associate Professor of Pediatric Endocrinology, Paul Hrews, uh, he wrote, limitations of the existing transgender literature include general lack of randomized perspective design. You know, they're usually retrospective, cross-sectional, small sample mm. sizes, Recruitment bias, which can be extraordinary, short study duration, way high subject dropout rates, and a reliance on so-called expert opinion. And the dropout rate is commonly 20 to 60% in these studies. If this was talking about a pharmaceutical trial, it would be invalid at that point, you know. yeah, so something to keep in mind there. Uh, so some bad studies. Anything based on the U.S. transgender survey of 2015, don't bother. I mean, the, the study was an online survey of transgender identified and gender queer adults from trans affirming websites. So that's as biased as you can get, you know, by design. Right. It includes everybody who doesn't identify that way anymore or is dead or, you know, can't reply. So it's non-representative. Um, it didn't even ask a specific question about gender dysphoria, just about identification. So that makes things confusing. It didn't control for underlying mental health. And get this, 70% of the respondents in the U.S. transgender survey didn't know what puberty blockers were. Well, how do we know that? Hmm. Because they claimed that they began it after age 18. Well, as far as puberty, the horse is way out of the barn by 18. You know, right. Blocking is not going to help you then. So stuff by Jack Turbin that usually relies on the U.S. transgender survey. His, his studies have been roundly defeated, and yet they're quoted right and left, and he's a media darling. Uh, mm-hmm. Trevor, uh, the Trevor Group, you know, out of North Carolina and, and where else right. they're headquartered, Trevor Foundation. They use studies by Green that both severely flawed the 2021 study, Association of Gender-Affirming Hormone Therapy with Different Aspects of Mental Health. Again, retrospective, cross-sectional, so you can't determine causation, you know, because of it. It even says so. And by the way, this is something Jack Turbin and the other people do. You look at the limitation section of the paper, they'll say, oh, you know, you you can't infer causality by cross-sectional design. And then they do it. You know, it's even in the title of the paper, you know. Yeah. they ignored key variables on the green study. They didn't look at substance abuse, bad childhood experiences, which is common in this group. It was done during the COVID pandemic, and they didn't make any accounting for the negative, general negative mental health effects of the pandemic mm-hmm. and the lockdown. And also someone who's genuinely suicidal is not going to be reporting to surveys. <clears throat> and the results of the thing, uh, 44% of those who received hormones, 57% of who wanted and did not receive reported uh, seriously considering suicide. Well, that's a failure. 44% yeah. of the ones who got the hormones still were suicidal, right? Um, 60% of those receiving the hormones, 75% who wanted to and didn't, uh, reported recent depression. That's, again, a failure. Uh, so, you know, but again, they they, they twist it and, and declare success. Um, 
I think one of the most outrageous is Olson Kennedy's out of Children's Hospital Los Angeles, 2018, on mastectomies on minors. Uh, the title chest dysphoria was, you know, uh, I'm sorry, the questionable claim was chest dysphoria was high uh, among pre-surgical transmasculine youth. Again, see the weaponized language and surgical mm. intervention positively affected. Well, here's the thing. Yep. Chest dysphoria is a neologism. See, so invented the term. It's not a DSM-5 diagnosis. Then their chest dysphoria scale, they also invented, and at least they had the graciousness to say, quote, it's not yet validated. Well, it never will be. They made it up. And the mastectomies yeah. were done on girls as young as 13. And, you know, we have trans activists telling us this is a lie. We don't do surgeries on minors. Okay. Really? It's in the published literature and they're bragging about it. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, bad news on this stuff. Again, I'm yeah. pleased to be working with organizations fighting this, be it law firms, legislators, uh, groups like CMDA, ACPEDS, Alliance Defending Freedom, and there's others out there. And you know, again, it's it's a team effort. We have going small team. There's really few people with MD after their names that are willing to speak up on this. But uh, right. you know, good things happening. So anybody who's you're mentioning, you know, stuff that I write, uh, Christian Medical and Dental Association, CMDA.org, and just put my name in the search engine, and it'll lead you to my blogs there. Uh, the Public Discourse, Ryan Anderson is uh, the editor for them, and I've written several things from them that are still up too. That's an easy way to do it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, and, and to wrap up, I feel like uh, something I say quite a bit when I'm speaking and teaching at churches is that we need to, as Christians, we need to be able to learn how to separate ideology from individuals. And we don't do that well. No. We tend to uh, we tend to lump uh, people who are hurting and broken and may may feel may come across as I think many people in the LGBT community assume that the church hates them because it's they've been told over and over again. Some have had experiences of that. I, there are some uh, churches that have that have been very hateful or very unkind to to some, and and so either they've experienced some of that personally from a, a bad experiences of of those who supposedly represent Christ and frankly don't. Um, or they they know of others who have. And so there's this generalized sense that Christians hate them. And so when we're, as Christians, as the church, when we are talking with those from that community, those who identify as LGBTQ, there can be a real brashness. There can be um, a lot of anger kind of coming at us. And I think a lot of that, we're not, we're not recognizing that a lot of that is a defense of what they're expecting to, to be coming at them. Okay. And, and, and also as Christians, if we are, are recognizing like this, the, the horrendous stuff that's being uh, dumped on children, the things that you and I have talked about, the things that you've unpacked and explained, we need to, to actually not just stick our heads in the sand, but we need to uh, rise up and, and be part of the solution uh, in love and graciousness, but with clarity and firmness as well. And, and so we're pushing it back against an ideology. We're pushing against uh, policy policies that that want to further encroach on religious freedom on um freedom of speech that kind of thing but frankly it, it really undermines the the well-being overall of the whole person of of adults and young people so we can stand against that and we can find and we should 
find creative ways of of getting involved, whether it's running for school boards, whether it's picking up some other, uh, becoming part of the of the solution again of standing against those things, and not just standing against, but also driving back and seeing policy enacted that actually protects kids and actually produces and 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 helps promote, uh, doesn't produce but helps promote uh, the environment in which human thriving can best happen. We need to be able to do that while at the same time being really gracious and um, truthful, but gracious and loving toward people who are confused and and under the, the spell of, under the delusion, under the siren song of culture that is, that's so off base. Yeah. And so many times we lump all of that together. We don't love people very well or we we don't stand up against an ideology because we're we're so quote unquote compassionate and merciful that we we're not doing you know I think our jobs as men and women of of loving in the best way possible yeah. you know the true biblical love is to desire the best for someone and that best for, I'm so grateful that when I look back and I wanted my parents to to move in my direction when I was, you know, when I brought a couple of boyfriends around and, you know, at different times and I so wanted them to 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 begin to maybe not affirm. I didn't think that was going to happen, but at least soften their position. Yeah. Um, they never treated me like badly when it came to this. They never threw me out of the house. They never. But I'm so grateful looking back. Um, in ways I can't even explain that my parents didn't give me what I wanted at the time. They loved me too much to do that. Yeah. And I think that so many times we as Christians are so sloppy about our so-called love or about grace that we're we're not loving well or we're not okay. loving biblically. Yeah. So Three little maxims come to mind that I put at the end of a lot of my lectures. Uh, one from a journalist, Mark Stein, the future belongs to those who show up. It sounds silly, but man, it's spot on it's for true. good or for bad. A second mm-hmm. from a church mate of mine, Havila Cunnington, you win by outlasting the crowd. Mm. Doesn't matter how smart everybody was. It doesn't matter if you're all bloodied, battered, muddy. Last person standing is last person standing. Yep. You know, you outlast the crowd. And third is uh, from Pastor Ade Amuba, who I believe is knighted uh, in the UK. Um, and he said, mm. to stand is to win. Simply mm-hmm. making the stand. You know, it doesn't, you don't want it to yep. be belligerent, nasty and all that stuff. You know, uh, you can, you can be kind and gentle when you're speaking reality. It can be done in relatively few words. Um, you, you don't have to be an MD, a PhD to be doing this. And I think most of the people making the difference, you know, aren't. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's people making a stand like, you know, teenager Chloe Cole. I mean, goodness sakes, like you were saying Yes. Yes, absolutely. And those, those three maxims remind me of, of one that I read years ago out of a book. And it, it was simply saying, stating that the referring to moms and dads, family and the church, basically um, comparing that to the LGBT community, essentially what this said is the ones who loved best win. And meaning that not, not giving everybody what they're asking for, but the ones who genuinely love, who stay in the game, who show up, you know, who continue to stand and, and, and offer that genuine love in the end, that is going to be the most compelling thing. That is the best way. There's, there's no absolute promise on that, but that is a principle that when we love biblically, we love well, we love lavishly, we love truthfully. And when we take truth out of love, it's no longer love. But when we love truthfully, um, that is the best opportunity for us to be and have an influence 
uh, in the life of of those that God has called us to minister to and those that we love. So Andre, so great to have you here, Dr. Van Mull. I so appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And I know our audience does as well. So for those of you who have joined us either through Love and Truth Network or through Transforming Congregations, we're so glad that you did. I'm glad that you're following us. I hope this, if this is a first time for you, I just want to invite you to tune in to another episode of um, our Love and Truth Network podcast. So blessings to you. And again, Dr. Van Mull, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you much. Thank you so much for joining us for this Love and Truth Network podcast. To listen to or watch future episodes, please check us out at loveandtruthnetwork.com forward slash podcast. Also, you can subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And we look forward to seeing you in a future episode. 